Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, on the 41st anniversary of this here Word of Life Church, uh, I have a message that is relevant to all of us who believe in the church. My text is the Old Testament reading from the lectionary for this Sunday, and it comes from the prophet Haggai. And the sermon is called The Glory of the Latter Temple. Let's get started. Haggai, you know, back in the old days, I'm reminiscing, you know, back in the old days, we didn't project all the scriptures so people toted their Bibles to church. But when you preached from the minor prophets, I always noticed that the sermon was over before they ever found it. You know, they can't find Haggai somewhere in there. Haggai chapter two, verse one. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Okay, I know, I know that's not a real exciting introduction right there. But it, if you get it, it actually sets the stage for it to be exciting. So let me give you the context. It's the year 520 B.C. 67 years earlier, Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, and the majority of the people had been carried off as forced exiles into Babylon. Okay, that was 67 years earlier. Then Babylon was overthrown by Persia, and Judea came under Persian domination. Um, during the, ring, during the reign of King Cyrus, a small bands of Jewish exiles began to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And now there's a new Persian king, King Darius, that, that tells us the year. Uh, and there's a Jewish governor, Zerubbabel, appointed by the Persian king. And there is the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. All right, now that's setting just a little context. 15 years earlier, 15 years before 520, these returning exiles said, you know what, you know what, you know what, we got we to gotta, we gotta rebuild the temple. I mean, what's the point of coming home to Jerusalem if we're not going to rebuild the temple? And so with great fanfare, they laid the foundation and got started and they worked on it for a little while and then everything ground to a halt. And all they have now is the foundation and some walls and a half-completed building, a half-completed temple that's just been sitting there with nobody working on it at all for 15 years. And that's when two prophets burst onto the scene, Haggai and Zechariah. And these two prophets begin to encourage the people to finish the task of rebuilding the temple. All right, that's the context. Now let's continue. Verse three, Haggai, this prophet, trying to encourage them to rebuild the temple that they had begun and abandoned, says, who is left among you 
who saw this temple in its former glory. And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Well, this is almost mean, the way he starts out. You understand? There would be some old people, sorry, <laughs> 70 and older, because the, the temple had been destroyed 67 years earlier. So people, let's say 70 and older, would remember Solomon's temple in its splendor, in its glory, in its majesty. And there's a guy he's preaching. He says, now some of you remember, don't you? Some of you remember that. And they're going, yes, yes, yes. The glory and the golden temple and the splendor and majesty. Yes, yes. Now, compare it to this. This foundation, half completed walls, it's, it's, you know, it's a long way from being anything remotely like a temple. He says, now compare the two. Does it not seem like nothing in your eyes? They are looking at the embarrassment of an abandoned building project. Okay, verse four. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel. That's the governor. Says the Lord and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. All right. So Haggai says to them, he says, look, some of you remember? You remember the glorious temple of Solomon? Yes. And now we got this. You know, it's just a foundation, some walls that are half completed, some building materials that have been sitting around, weeds are growing up everywhere. And he says, but, well, he says what all the prophets and all the angels say, come on, don't be afraid. We're going to see this through. How's it going to happen? Well, he says, he says, my spirit remains among you despite the setbacks Despite the delays, despite the seeming impossibility of it all, let's go to work because God's spirit is among us to help us. Now, Haggai has his partner prophet, Zechariah. It's just two pages over. I'm going to read that because they're, they're working in tandem. They're working at the same time. They're working together. And this is what Zechariah says. Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is the governor. He's the guy that's kind of in charge there. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So they're prophesying together. They both say it's all about the spirit. Zechariah says it's not. Come on. I know it seems impossible, but it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And this mountain of resistance, this mountain that is opposing the completion of the temple, it shall be removed. It shall become a plain. It shall be, Jesus would say, cast into the sea and will bring forth the completion of the temple with shouts of grace, grace to it. Grace, grace to it. Grace, grace to it. 
Some of the older people remember what I'm talking about. Come on now. How how many of you get the resonance of grace, grace to it? Some of you. Pastor Linda's with us in the house today. Linda Saunders Buckle is with us today. You remember, you were, you were already thinking about that before I, yes, she, she knows what I'm going to say. You don't know what I'm going to say. So in 1993, we broke ground here at Riverside and Cook. You were at the groundbreaking, Pastor Linda, Perry, Stan, Joy, you were there. Derek, he was like four years old. <laughs> you were here. You were here. How old, but you weren't four. How old were you? I was probably 19. 19. Okay, 19. Pastor Derek was 19. He had hair on his head and everything. And uh, we broke ground to build this. And two years later, 1995, two years later, two years later, we had the steel skeleton up and some of the concrete poured. And that was it. Concrete out there was, concrete down here was not poured. And it turned into a duck pond. I mean, literally, because you know, the water pooled down here, there's no roof or anything, and and the ducks were swimming around. So we're building ourselves like a $3 million duck pond. You say, now why wasn't it finished? No dinero. There was no money. And it's funny, it's hard to get people to work if you don't pay them. And so we kept a few, I mean, we, we had the world's smallest bulldozer out here just kind of putting around and I don't know what it was doing, but we had a few people here, but it wasn't, you know, we were on track to get finished, you know, in 2050 or something like that. So I didn't know what to do. But what I, one of the things I did was we were, the church was over on Frederick Avenue at that time. I instructed the congregation. I said, I need you to do something for me. I need you to get in your cars, you know, do this at least once a week. Drive out there to Riverside Cook, just drive by it, roll down your window and shout grace, grace to it. I really did that. And you really did that. Some of you did. I mean, I'd be out here, you know, and you hear car, grace, grace to it. And, and uh, this one of the guys out here working said, what was that? I said, that's how you're going to get paid. That's, that's what that is. That's how you're going to get paid. And you say, is it, was that crazy? Of course it was crazy, but God did miracles according to the craziness of our faith. You know, sometimes you have to have some crazy faith. It's how you keep from going insane. (laughs) That's a good line. Sometimes you have to have some crazy faith. It's how you keep from going insane. That's when we started the anniversary offering. That's where did it get? It began November 95 because we needed several hundred thousand dollars to be able to finish. And it came in. Some of you that weren't here then, now's your chance. You, you said, I, w- I would have helped if I was there then. All right, <laughs> you can help us now with the anniversary offering, amen. Uh, believe me, back in those days, and those, uh, I, I lived in Haggai and Zechariah. I, I, people thought I was preaching sermons. They said they were good. They thought I was preaching to them. I was not preaching to them. 
I was preaching to me. I was living from Sunday to Sunday just to hear my own sermon to build up my faith. And sometimes that can be the very best preaching. Amen and amen. All right, let's go back to, go back to Haggai. Haggai, we're ready for verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give shalom. I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. These, these are the, the daring words of the prophet. I mean, it, there's just a holy audacity. Yeah, it's a half-finished building project that has been abandoned for 15 years. And Haggai says there and says, look at it. See, does it seem like nothing compared to Solomon's temple? But I prophesy to you that the glory of this second temple, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater even than the former temple of Solomon. And they were inspired by these words of faith from the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And they went to work and they gave and they did what was necessary. And four years later, they dedicated their new temple, the second temple. Now, was the glory of Zerubbabel's temple, that's what it would be called, was the glory of Zerubbabel's temple greater than the glory of Solomon's temple? No. It was not. It was a temple. It was rebuilt. It was not anywhere near as glorious as Solomon's temple. In fact, in the book of Ezra, we're told that at the dedication of the temple, many of the older priests wept. They wept because, well, at least it's a temple. But it's a far cry from what we knew in the glory of that first temple, the former temple. And so the reality was the glory of the former temple was greater than the latter. So does that mean Haggai was wrong? Hold on. 400 years later, 400 years later, that's a long time, King Herod began a 46-year building project. You say what you will about Herod, and most of it's bad, the dude could build. And you, you see the remains of his spectacular building projects all over the Holy Land to this day. 400 years later, Herod began a 46-year-old, 46-year building project to enlarge and refurbish and improve the temple complex. Um, and, and, and you could say for sure that Herod's temple was more glorious than Solomon's. All right. But is that what, is that what Haggai's prophecy about the glory of the latter temple meant? I mean, is it the wicked King Herod who fulfills the prophecy of a more glorious temple? Is that what that is? Of course not. And this is where we need to insist that we read the Old Testament in the light of Christ. Whether he understood it or not, 
The prophet Haggai was prophesying about Christ as the desire of all nations and the far more glorious temple of Shalom that Christ would build. Herod's temple was indeed impressive. You remember, you remember Jesus' disciples were awed by it. Teacher, look, look at these buildings. And that precipitates Jesus all of that discourse when he says, ah, you know, not one stone's going to be left upon another. It's all coming down. They said, really? And Jesus said, really? When's it going to happen? What will be the sign? And, and Jesus gives us all of that discourse. Jesus was at best ambivalent about the temple. And during his final days, he repeatedly prophesied the temple's doom. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's all going to be destroyed. Here are the signs of the end, the end of the age, the end of the temple age. These are the signs and this prophecy came about 40 years later when the Romans destroyed the temple in the entire city of Jerusalem in AD 70. You see, Herod's temple was in reality an imitation of Rome's imperial splendor, just as, listen to this, Solomon's temple was mostly an imitation of Pharaonic Egypt. Jesus spoke of the end of the temple because the kingdom that he was bringing would be nothing like the empires of Pharaoh and Caesar. So when Jesus enters the temple, what does he do? He enacts a prophetic, symbolic destruction of the temple that we mostly inaccurately described as the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers, makes a whip and drives out the sheep and cattle, Jesus is not cleansing the temple for further use. He is prophesying its imminent doom, that it's coming to an end. Now let's pick this up in the gospel of John. So this is John's account of the cleansing of the temple the prophetic protest of the temple, the prophetic symbolic destruction of the temple. And we pick it up. Verse 18, chapter two. So the Judeans answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Judeans said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. All right, so Jesus enters the temple. He disrupts the temple. He overturns the money changers' tables, drives them out of the temple, drives the sheep and cattle out of the temple. And the people say, well, you know, you got, you got to show us a sign by what authority, you, you know, you, who are you? You better have a sign for us if you're going to be pulling stunts like this. Jesus, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Here's the sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, Psh. It took 46 years. It took King Herod 46 years to get this temple to this state of glory. And you're going to destroy it and raise it up in three days. And then John jumps in. John the evangelist jumps in and says, he's talking about the temple of his body. 
And the disciples understood this after his death and resurrection. All right. This is actually complex. What is the body of Christ? Well, if I ask my Catholic friends, you know, I just got done doing a retreat for Benedictine sisters. How about that? Didn't see that one coming, did you, Pastor Linda? They, yes, Benedictine sisters invited me to do a four-day retreat. They asked me to do an eight-day retreat. I said, come on now, I can only do four. If I ask my Benedictine sister friends, um, what is the body of Christ? They're probably going to say the Eucharist. If I ask my Protestant friends, what is the body of Christ? They're going to say the church. And of course, they're both right. But first of all, the body of Christ is the corporal, crucified and risen body of Jesus. But they're all connected together. The crucified and risen body of Jesus. The body of Jesus that we receive in communion. The body of Jesus that we become. They're all connected. The body of Christ that is the crucified, risen body of Jesus. The body of Christ we receive at communion. The body of Christ that we become. So what is... What is this glorious ladder temple? What is the ladder and more glorious temple that is a sanctuary of God's shalom? Of course, it is the temple of the body of Christ, a temple made of living stones. And this is what Haggai was prophesying. Did he understand it? No, he didn't understand it. But that, that's what it means to be a prophet. You say far more than you can comprehend. It gave them in that moment the resolve, the courage, the inspiration, the faith to rebuild the temple, and they did, and that's good. But if we're gonna talk about a temple more glorious than Solomon, it's not fulfilled by Herod's big deal building project. Haggai was prophesying the glorious temple made of living stones that you and I are. The apostle Paul, he uh, speaks of Christ among you, the you is plural, Christ among you all, the hope of glory. The glory of the latter house is the temple made of living stones, of the believing baptized, where Christ is among us today, giving us peace. That's the temple we're talking about. So, the more glorious latter temple that the prophet Haggai foretold has nothing to do with impressive buildings or national interests or imperial aspirations. No, all of these things are the petty ambitions of Pharaoh's Caesars and their later wannabes. So this, this is the false glory of the kingdoms of this world that the devil offered to Jesus in the wilderness temptation and Jesus rejected. The more glorious temple of which the prophets spoke is nothing other than the new temple that is the body of Christ whose glory is Christ himself and whose sanctuary is shalom. The attempt to create a Christian nation through Christian nationalism is an absurd and utter impossibility. The only thing, only that which can be baptized can be Christian. You can't baptize a political nation. This was the mistake the church made in the fourth century with Constantine. And I wanna, you know, I've critiqued that enough, but I do wanna give you the best single paragraph critique of that. It comes from a German theologian, 
uh, Gerhard Lofink. He writes, the development toward an imperial church and finally toward a state religion was almost a matter of necessity given the constellation of late antiquity. Perhaps the church had to take that road. It was a grandiose attempt to create a Christian empire and thus to unite faith, life, and culture. Only a careful look at the people of God in the Old Testament, their experiment with the state and the collapse of that experiment could have preserved the church from repeating the old mistake. But it was not possible in late antiquity or in the Middle Ages for people to read the Old Testament so analytically. Political theology was instead enraptured with David and Solomon. Only the history of the modern era shattered the dream. Come on, this is a German theologian. Today, the experiment is truly at an end and must never be resumed. All right, we've looked into the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah. We've looked into one of the gospels, John. We're going to wrap it up with an epistle. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Okay, this is Haggai. He's quoting from Haggai chapter 2. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews understands that the glory of the latter temple is not a nation of this world, but the unshakable kingdom of Christ. If you place your hope in the politics of this world, you will be greatly shaken. I don't get an amen for that. Do I have to beg? I, are you going to reduce me to begging? All right. Say it again. If you place your hope in the politics of this world, you are going to be greatly shaken. Amen. All right, well, that was kind of contrived, but all right. <laughs> let us have grace and let's show thanks for the unshakable kingdom of God. Listen, I have so little faith in America, but fortunately I'm sustained by a faith placed elsewhere. That doesn't mean I don't care about America. It just means I've placed my faith elsewhere. I've placed it in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that is the kingdom of Christ. And that is the glory of the latter house that is greater than anything that there's ever been or ever will be. Amen and amen. Now, now, let's come to the table and participate in the body of Christ. And let's baptize some people into the body of Christ. Amen. Stand up with me. I would love to invite, I would like to invite right now those that are about to be baptized. Would you come down here and, and just stand in front of the communion table and let's give them a hand as they come. Yeah. This is, this is the best. These are the best moments, church. So come on, encourage them some more. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Stand, 
Derek, direct traffic, get them. <laughs> all right, so what we're going to do is, first of all, we're going to, well, we do this every Sunday, but we're going to confess our faith in the form of the Apostles' Creed, which is, this is the earliest, most original baptismal creed. This is what our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago were saying before they were baptized. And I just love that there's that continuity, that what they were saying as they were about to be baptized 2,000 years ago is what we're saying here today. And then we will receive communion and we'll all get ready. And after, after communion's done here, then we'll be having baptism. So join with me now in confessing, all of us together, our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, let's confess our sins and receive the Lord's forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Amen.